I don't know if you've seen these guys before, the, the Blue Angels, um, but uh, they're quite an incredible presentation. Um, they fly in tight formation like this. During one halftime show, um, the Blue Angels are, of course, doing their high-octane, supersonic performance. Uh, the ultimate expression, in my mind, of intensity, excitement, pushing the limits. And after they had performed all of their stunts, uh, a helicopter took the group of Blue Angels, flew them to the 50-yard line, and then they got out in their jumpsuits. And one of the members from the Blue Angels said, as he was presenting, if I were God sending my son into the world, I would have done it just like this. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you think about it. But then he says right after that, but that's not how God did it. And that's the Christmas story, isn't it? That's not how God did it. He did it differently. He sent one of his angels to visit a young girl named Mary, as James said, in Podunk, Nowhere, Nazareth. He tells Mary, you, a virgin, are going to give birth to a son and this son is going to change human history, and he did. He also inspires the most powerful man in the then-known world at the time, Caesar Augustus, to literally shake up the then-known world, to move people, so that this son, Jesus, would be born in just the right place, but not a grand place, not a well-known place. No, not Rome, not Jerusalem. No, he shakes up the world so that Mary and Joseph would have to move 90 miles south so that Jesus could fulfill Micah 5.2 and be born in Bethlehem. Think about it. No lights, no attractions, no press releases, no parades, no room in the inn. Why? Why did God do it differently? Well, we've actually been looking at a book of the Bible called Philippians, and it's in this book of the Bible that Paul is writing to a church that's being persecuted. They're struggling. And he's kind of boldly coming to this church and saying, listen, you can live a life of joy, a life of happiness, despite your circumstances. Well, where is this joy found? Well, he says it's in Christ Jesus. Why is it that some of us miss out on this joy? Well, it's because we try to pursue it in other avenues, in other places other than Jesus. So Paul is telling us in the book of Philippians that the gift of joy is completely wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Now, he gets into chapter 5 and he says, there's a, an attitude that you must have if you want this joy. In Philippians 2.5, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, what attitude did Jesus had? Well, it can be expressed in one word. Paul says the attitude is humility. Now, think about that word for just a minute. If you were asked to describe humility, how would you describe it? I want to suggest that it's kind of hard to describe why? Well, because when you run across a humble person, they don't 
tend to stand out or make a big splash, unlike that blue angel, right, who wanted to make the spectacle, God opts for a more subtle entrance. And that's the idea of humility. Humility stands out precisely because it doesn't stand out. You wouldn't really notice a humble person. They wouldn't be the front and center of the situation. I like how Timothy Keller talks about humility. He says, it's not needing to think about myself. I know that I'm becoming humble when I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. He describes it like this. Humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Now, Paul, as he's writing to this church, is dealing with a church that, you know, is kind of infighting right now. In Philippians 2, verse 3, he describes humility like this, thinking of others as better than yourself. Humility. Humility produces joy. It produces joy because it removes me from the formula of joy. So I can be happy because I don't need to be the center of my universe. I don't need to be better than anyone else. I can just simply embrace the reality that I am enough. Humility gives us so many gifts, such as contentment, personal satisfaction, relational satisfaction, and happiness. Now, I know you've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Remember, we said humility is something that's kind of hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul gives us the portrait of the ultimate example of humility in all of history. This, these verses, if you're in the book of Philippians, is the jewel on the crown of the book of Philippians. It's the theological center of the book. It's here that Paul shows us through two events in the life of Jesus what humility really means. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, and this is verses 6 through 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So what do we learn about humility from this portrait of Jesus? Again, there's really two examples that Paul is latching onto here. One is the incarnation. That's Jesus becoming a human being. And the second is the crucifixion. That's Jesus dying on the cross. What do we learn about humility from that? Well, the first thing we learn from Jesus in the incarnation is that less is more. Less is more. You see, Jesus didn't need to come flying into the world on a supersonic jet because God doesn't value that. God values becoming less so that others might become more. That's really the meaning behind Christmas. 
God took on flesh. God disrobed himself from the glory of heaven and he enters into our world. God becomes less so that you and I might become more. You know, Paul says that he gives up his divine privileges. What does that mean? Does that mean that when Jesus took on flesh, that for some time he became less God in some way? Well, really what's remarkable about this entire story is the answer to that question is absolutely not. He's fully God the entire time that he's walking this earth. So he has access to all the privileges of God. Think about the life of Jesus. When he's being arrested, he has all the power of God in that moment. When he's being questioned, he has all of the knowledge of God in that moment. And yet, Scripture says he chose not to exercise those privileges, his godlike properties, so that he could meet us where we are. Now, if you're having trouble wrapping your mind around that, like you should, I want to give you a little metaphor to help you think through it. Um, imagine that you are going to visit a hospital for the first time. You're going to visit someone that you know, and it's a big hospital. They make some really big hospitals nowadays, and you are going to park. You can't find parking anywhere, and so you must park just really far away from the front door. By the time you find a parking spot, you get lost. You have no idea where you're going, and you look lost. Someone's driving by, they see you in your lost state, and they stop, and she says to you, hey, can I help you out? And you say, I have no idea where I'm going. And she says, here, let me do this. Instead of me trying to describe it to you, why don't I park right next to you, and I'm going to walk you to the front entrance of the hospital. So you start walking with this person, and you come to find out that she is the chief surgeon of the hospital. You're making your way to the front entrance. You notice a parking spot with a sign on it, and it has her name there. What has she chosen to do? She's chosen to become less, perhaps for a day, so that you would have more, right? You would be able to find your way into the hospital. Now, I know it's kind of a thin metaphor when you relate it to Christ, but think about this woman for just a moment. She has given up her privileges, but is she still a doctor? Yes. Uh, is the parking spot at the front of the hospital still hers to utilize when she wish wishes? Yes, it's still hers. She's just chosen in that moment to become, again, less to give up her privileges for us. I like what this one author says about Jesus in the incarnation. The incarnation, remember, that's Christ becoming a human being, was not just an event in Bethlehem. The incarnation was the moment-by-moment -moment choice of Christ to lay down his privileges, his rights as God, and to acquiesce to ungrateful sinners every second in order to effect our salvation. In other words, he chose to become less so that we could become more. And he goes even further. 
He also shows us in his humility that lower is higher. What do I mean by that? Well, look with me at verse 8. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and, and died a criminal's death on the cross. If you're ever asking yourself, what's the why of Christmas? You're thinking about Christmas, and, and I hope you reflect on this every single Christmas. Why would God send his son into the world? Why would Jesus Christ, God the Son, take on flesh and live amongst us? Why would he be born? The answer to that question in the Bible is he was born to die. He was born to go to the cross. And scripture tells us and, and really shows us that this crucifixion is the most graphic way that God could show us certain things about ourselves and also about himself. Well, what does it show us about ourselves? Well, the cross, well, it demonstrates how bent and broken we are. The Bible says, that you and I, in this sin-sick world, have a fallen nature. What does that mean, really? Well, I like to think of it like this. I like to think of it like a car that's out of alignment. Have you ever driven your car when it's out of alignment? You have the steering wheel kind of like this, and the car's going straight when you hold it like this. And what happens when you let go of the steering wheel? When you let go, you kind of drift off into the shoulder. I have had that happen before. It's pretty difficult, right? And, and I'm the kind of guy that just keeps driving like that, which is a big problem. I should go see a mechanic. Well, it's kind of true in the same way of a fallen nature. You drift morally. Your natural bent as a human being is from a bent of selfishness, away from God. When you let go of the wheel of your life, you drift off into the moral shoulder. That's why each one of us, when we think about our lives, say, why is it that I knew it was wrong to do this thing, or I shouldn't have done this thing, or I shouldn't have hurt this person, and yet I let go, and I did. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this. He says, if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, now I've felt that way before, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. In other words, Paul is saying, I let go of the wheel and I drift. And the cross shows us just how fallen this nature is because God had to become flesh to die for us. But it also shows us this. It demonstrates that there is no place to low for God to go to reach us. You know, this Roman cross was quite possibly the most degrading form of execution ever conceived of by the human mind. 
these people were masters of torture. Max humiliation. They didn't just want to end someone's life. Max humiliation for the longest duration of time. Maximum amount of suffering. In fact, the cross was so like reprehensible to this culture that in polite Roman society, you didn't talk about the cross. It was considered an obscenity. So why in the world would Jesus Christ subject himself to that level of humiliation? Well, I believe it's because there's no no more powerful way to say, I would do anything for you. I would do anything for you. There's no place too low that I would be willing to go. You know, sacrifice does that. It speaks powerfully to a person's intentions. It cracks the the fallen human heart wide open. It, It touches us in a place that no other thing could touch us. I was reminded of just this past week, I was reading the story of Dean McCauley. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was um, involved in the mass shooting that took place on October 1st, 2017, that country music concert in Las Vegas. So McCauley's here with two other friends when the bullets start spraying at this concert. And, And they do what is natural, right? You hear that pandemonium, you get that fear response, they start running for the exit. They make it to the exit, and just when he's about to cross the threshold, he looks at his two friends and he says, I've got to go back. I've got work to do. And his friends begin arguing with him. No, don't, you know, get safe, and then you can go back, and you can help people afterwards. And he says, no. And insanely, this guy who is safe runs back into hell to start helping people. He goes to a medical tent. He grabs some gloves. Uh, First, he finds two young women, and he helps to get them out of this chaos. And then he goes running back into the chaos, and he finds a young girl, Natalia Baca, 17 years old, She's been shot and she's bleeding out. He grabs a tourniquet, stops the bleeding, hooks her up to an IV. Then he takes her and he carries her out of the place and he gets her into an ambulance. And literally, because of his willingness to sacrifice, saves the young lady's life. Incredible. I mean, stories like this touch the human heart. Sacrifice speaks volumes. It says there is no place that I would not be willing to go. I would do anything for you. Christmas is a story like that on steroids. I mean, the humble God of the universe is saying to you, I would become less so that you could become more. I would go wherever I have to go to reach you. I'm willing to go back because I love you. So the question is, of course, when you think about this is, how do I respond to it? What should I do about this? Well, remember what Paul said in verse 5, have this same attitude amongst yourselves. The proper response to the Christmas story is 
humility. The first way that you can respond to this, and I want to submit three, is with humble faith. What is humble faith? Well, humble faith looks at the sacrifice of Jesus and says, that is enough. I don't need to add anything to the work of Jesus. I don't need to do enough good things to earn God's favor. If God became flesh, he came into the world and died in my place, I just need to humbly say yes to that and accept it. The second response I want to suggest is humble acceptance. Now, humble acceptance is this. If Jesus is willing to become less, if he's willing to go low for you, doesn't that imply that he thinks you're special? And not because I say that I'm special, and not because I've done anything special, but because he thinks you're special, which is a powerful, freeing self-recognition. That's why Tim Keller calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness when I become humble. I don't have to be anything more than I am. I'm not anything less than I am. I am exactly what Jesus says I am. Thirdly, respond with humble imitation. Now, what I like about this Christian gospel is we kind of think sometimes that Jesus came into the world just to forgive us, but it goes further than that. He came into the world to forgive us and to change us, to transform us. God's will for your life is that you would become like Jesus, that you would grow to be humble like Jesus, that you would find the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You know, I believe that Jesus was the happiest guy who ever lived. And and the main reason for that is because he perfectly embodied this idea of humility. Why is there freedom in humility? Well, I get the freedom of not having to be right. I get the freedom of not thinking about myself all the time. And I start to think about others. And imagine how that would go for our relationships if we're putting others before ourselves. I get the freedom to serve others. I get the freedom to be who God made me to be. And here's the last one. I think this one's really important. I get the freedom to stop comparing myself with others. You know, we do that a lot. We're constantly looking to the right and to the left and evaluating my worthiness based upon how I measure up to this person or that person. And you know, that is such an impossible ask. Why? Well, because I'm comparing an apple with an orange. I like what Dr. Um, Henry Cloud says. He's a psychologist. He says that comparison never works because we don't have the same genes, brain chemistry, hormone levels, talents and gifts, temperament or personality as another person. If you want to think about it like wintertime, we're snowflakes or we are fingerprints. We're that different from one another. And God created me that way because God is a creator. 
So here's your Christmas gift, y'all. The Christmas gift is very simple. You can have joy. Why? Number one, Christ is enough. Number two, because Christ is enough and in him, you are enough. That's the Christmas story. You get to become a child of God. You get the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You get to live the life that God always intended you to live. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we look at your word this morning or this evening, we want to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. As Paul says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. May we adopt this humble attitude in our lives. I believe that you want us to have joy, Lord, that you want us to experience the fullness and the richness of this life that you intended for us. And we know, Lord, that the only means to this life is through Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.